what's happening, everybody? Greetings, filmmakers and fellow film buffs. My name is Jonathan Leiter, and you're listening to the very first episode of Framing the Shot, brought to you by way of the Cinema Warehouse. Now, if you're like me, and you've indulged yourself in the works of YouTube film analysts like Renegade Cut, Every Frame a Painting, Nerd Writer, and my personal favorite, Cinema Tyler, you've probably been looking for a podcast that covers similar topics. Well, that's what this podcast aims to do. Forgoing the typical format of reviewing individual titles, Frame in the Shot is my all-new film podcast that takes a deeper look into the storytelling and cinematic elements that make or break a film. Character development, shot design, editing, acting, costuming, set design, story structure, musical composition, even color. All these and more are subjects I'm dying to cover on this show. Subjects I wish I could have learned more about when I was in film school. For today's debut episode, we'll be venturing into the pertinent and pivotal topic of opening sequences, or how can you effectively engage an audience in the first few minutes. Joining me today is my good friend Christopher Horton, an enormous nerd and skillful speaker. Has a bachelor's degree in creative writing, he has been gifted with a lexicon-like brain and a passion for history, and as you'll soon see, he is the ideal person to talk to when you want to discuss anything involving scripting, plot, or character development. So, let's get our focus and roll episode one. Sound check, sound check. I can watch things move on the screen. Woo! Uh, so, these I'm going to have to boost mm-hmm. by 10 at right, least. Right, right. But, you know, about an inch away is... Right. Is best for most of it. That and you're gonna have to edit like all of this out. I mean, you could leave it in if you want. That's up to you. Yeah. But I mean, more than likely, people don't want us to talk about the factor of ten. I mean, we're not mathematicians or engineers or people who get paid absurd amounts of money for anything. <laughs> but hey, one day, one day, that's the goal. But so we were discussing the idea of kind of how you open a story, how you open those original things. And I was telling you that my original, my first thoughts, particularly since my experience is kind of more in this um, format, is to go to television and talk about that for a second. Um, The cold open for Breaking Bad, which is kind of, it's almost a cliche to even mention it, considering it's so well established at this point and it's such a wonderful, everyone will go back and be like, this is how you do a cold open, children. Like, look, this is that wonderful, glorious place where all the cold opens just bound through the fields and everyone gives you Emmys. But (laughs) to establish that, it has everything really working for it. Like, it is almost, it might be the perfect. It is very close to the idealized kind of perfect open. And I would even extend that to saying it's probably one of the best opening scenes for any kind of a story I've ever seen. Because essentially you have the character of Walter White doing something absurd, but very intense. You have him doing something that catches our attention because we have no idea what it is or the purpose of it, but we know the stakes are high. We have no idea why they're high. We have no idea what's going on, but we're invested because we know something bad is happening or going to happen or just happened because he doesn't have pants on. Yes. And that's (laughs) basically all we need to know. So we're kind of already tied into that moment. And then when he gets out of the van... 
and he pulls out the mic. And I think the first time we actually hear him speak is when he's talking to the camera and he's addressing his family. Mm -hmm. We know everything we ever need to know about Walter White in those first few seconds of that conversation. Yes. Because he's like, I didn't do anything bad. I'm just a good person. Whatever they tell you is a lie. So forth and so forth. And then we watch him pull out a gun and wait for the cops to show up. We know from that moment that he is overly conscious of what his family thinks about him, about what he thinks about himself, about what society thinks about him. But at the end of the day, he's going to do what he wants to do. And he's going to pull out a gun and use violence and use threat and use his ability to take what he wants rather than any of the systems in place in society to actually give him that. And so, like, there's really no better way to set up, like, that character and that story because that is that is what we spend the rest of our time with in that entire show is watching Walter White do that again and again and again and again. Um, what's another good show that does something like that? Well, that you you were mentioning that it that's like the the pinnacle mm -hmm. of a cold open. Is that because it's the kind where you show like just before the climax at the head of the the episode? Because that's what it's doing. It's mm -hmm. showing you mm -hmm. just minutes before the climax ahead of time, and then replaying it later in sequence. You mean like taking it out of order? Um, yeah. No, I, I'm going to say that's not entirely it. I Granted, I'm more of a structuralist when it comes to storytelling, like the idea of like things that loop back to each other or things that like are clearly um, foreshadowing of other things. I just love to death. Um, Reservoir Dogs does this. In the opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, when they're all there before the job and they're all buying breakfast or whatever, whatever meal they're buying, mm -hmm. one guy doesn't tip. And they make a big point about it. Everyone goes, wait, who didn't tip the waitress? There are only 10 tips here. Who didn't tip the waitress? Or there are only so many tips on the table. Who didn't tip the waitress? That scene is the entire film. Everyone trying to find out the one guy that has a different moral code than everyone else. The rest of the film is them just doing that with guns. Right. That's it. Like that moment at the table is the movie. And so I don't think that the like the reason that that is the pinnacle of cold opens, that the particular um, Breaking Bad cold open is that pinnacle is because they skipped to the climax and then brought us back to the beginning. I think it's because it takes the entire show, which is this average ordinary person way over their head because actually deep down inside they're not a great person. And they are willing to use that to get what they want is like pushed to that extreme. All of that is present. Yeah. And so I think that's why it's a great cold open, not just because they skipped forward into a more climactic moment. If they'd done something like that, if they'd just taken that same, those same kind of elements and put it into a different like scene, they just redone it. I think we would have had a great cold open. I don't think it would have been the same great cold open, but I think we could have had a great cold open. Um, but basically I think that the, the essential nature of trying to set up your story is being able to, in a very short period of time, establish what your story is, where it's going and why. Like there's the concept of a slug line, which is like two, three senses, explain your story. 
um, there was a TV show on Netflix I've been watching a little bit of called um, Love, Death, and Robots. And I read one of the episode descriptions. I was like, that's great. What a great little episode description. One of it was like um, mercenaries um, and an archaeologist fight against vampires with cats. (laughs) And I'm like, all right, cool. I'm down. I don't know what this is. I don't care. Let's go watch it. Um, Another one was was like two supernatural soldiers uh, or was it like deep in Afghanistan two um, supernatural soldiers must fight against their own kind and you're like okay cool I know exactly what to expect from this we're in Afghanistan so like the US Afghanis like we have some terrorist elements thrown in we have like who knows what's going on and we have supernatural I don't need to know anything more than that I have the general picture of the story in my head Everything else is just the details that people will sprinkle onto it. That's kind of what you're doing in an opening scene is you're giving those kinds of moments without explaining them. You're letting the audience kind of encounter these things that tell them what the show is going to be without being like, hey, guys, the show is going to be this one thing. And by the way, if you can't hear that on the mic, I'm super sorry. I'm whispering for dramatic effect, and it's hilarious for everyone who can see me doing it. I'm also looking at the computer monitor while I'm apologizing because that's where I'm picturing the audience. Um, so I apologize for that as well. But yeah, what do you, what do you think? You are much more film-oriented than I am. I am much more TV. Um, what, in your opinion, is kind of a great opening scene? I guess that goes into the... I, I had three... I came up with three requirements <clears throat> for an opening film scene. Mm-hmm. Now, of course... You, you made it much more clear to me that opening scenes, and I, I for the life of me, I can't remember any specifically, mm-hmm. but where it is in one scene or one moment, you are boiling down the rest of the film right. in that. I think mine, my ideas of what a good opening scene is relate to tone, setting, mm-hmm. and energy. Mm-hmm but you also uh, get an introduction to at least one character. And maybe that scene with that one character not only informs you about them, but informs you about you know, how they'll behave the rest of the film and how they might make decisions. Right. But not necessarily, this is a microcosm of the entire plot in right. one moment. Right. Um, let's see, I think, I think I labeled them an opening scene can be an action scene, mm-hmm. in which case you are giving people an adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. And usually an adrenaline rush action scene for your opening either imparts a bit of information that is useful to the audience for later mm-hmm. uh, because it's something that the main character doesn't know about. Right. Or you're... you're so kind of like the opening to Lord of the Rings, at least not not for the action section because the opening to Lord of the Rings isn't meant to... Well, it kind, the music is kind of meant to drive up your your emotions and get that adrenaline kind of mm-hmm. going. But it's there to tell you stuff about the ring that the main characters don't yet know. Yes. And I, I will tie back to that because I, mm-hmm. I had other points about Lord of the Rings. Um, or you are establishing a character's personality, which I think definitely the opening to Casino Royale does that. Mm-hmm. It it introduces you to James Bond and what how he will handle a situation. Um and I think the other Daniel Craig films do the exact same thing, but they, I think some, at least the second film, Quantum of Solace, imparts a bit of information before the title starts. Uh-huh. 
Um, I forget what Skyfall does in the opening. Oh, he he's uh he's being chased on the train and he gets shot and falls off. Mm-hmm. So that's establishing that someone they they wanted to kill him and get him out of commission, but it turns out he's all right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think the Sean Connery films opened with a scene. I think they just went right into the titles right. and then began the film. Right. Because that's how you had to do things back then. You always had to start with titles up until the 70s when Star Wars came out, and right. then George Lucas uh, went against tradition and started with uh, just the title card and moved on. For someone who's rev- who's not reviled, reviled is the wrong word, but someone who is not necessarily like appreciated as a great director, we talk about George Lucas a lot. Yes, we do. Like it's surprising how often we're like, oh yeah, and George Lucas did this one thing, and oh yeah, and then George Lucas came by and was like, let's try it all differently, and we're like, cool, let's do that, and then we come back to the prequels and we're like, George Lucas, go burn in hell forever except he's he still had many good ideas Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. the tv series he went Mm -hmm. further than his films and and made the tv series rather good but he also got uh dave filoni on board right and dave learned says he learned everything from george and i'm really excited to see the mandalorian which also has dave filoni um i'm so glad they gave him a shot on live action i really am interested to see first of all what's his name um Prince Oberon from Game of Game of Thrones. His real name is something very interesting that I just can't remember because <laughs> I just don't care. Love him to death. I actually really enjoy him as an actor, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do because like some of the things he's done since he died in Game of Thrones haven't been really like, in my opinion, like the best offering from his skills. And so I've been sort of like, oh yeah, I would really like to see what you could do with given that space. And so I'm hoping. I'm hoping the Mandalorian will kind of give him that, but so that, he he's gonna be the Mandalorian. I believe so. As okay. far as I'm aware, which isn't super far, I believe he is. Um, that actually leads me to an interesting thought I just had about other ways to kind of tease information to your audience or set up expectations or tone. Like, um, I just watched a TV show on Netflix called Kingdom, which is a Korean drama. So automatically hate me for that. Um, But it was called Kingdom. It's a six episode series and it's about zombies in feudal Korea. And the credit sequence, which they do have, is nothing but this death ritual um, where they're like performing acupuncture on this individual. And like you have all these incenses and all these different things. And it seems like just a very standard kind of like funerary practice except there are weird elements to it that seem off and you're not entirely sure why or what's going on because you know just from my cultural context i'm not completely and totally intimately familiar with korean funerary rites Um, but there are a few different things that you're like i'm pretty sure you don't do that that's pretty weird come to find out and granted i'm not trying to spoil this for any of the people on this monitor that i'm now looking at about the show But you come to find out that that was basically the process by which they brought the king of the country back as a zombie so they could pretend he was alive long enough for them to produce a male heir to oust the crown prince. And so it's a very weird political thing. But you find out every time you watch that opening 
that that is this whole setup. Like, basically, that is the before the first scene of the movie rolls. That's already happened. And they're taking those credits and doing kind of an artistic tonal show um, showpiece on what kind of like that that pre-fictional existence storyline, like before the movie actually starts kind of thing. And it was really fascinating to me just because most people take that credit sequence and decide to do something like fun with it or like overly artsy, like Luke Cage comes to mind or Daredevil where they're cool openings, but they really add nothing to the show. They're not like there to tell you anything or show you anything. They're just there to like do something cool and dramatic. Um, so it was really interesting to see something else use that space in a different way. Mm-hmm. Now I'm a sucker for, for cool and, and, dr- and dramatic, um, visual openings mm-hmm. to dial back to what I was saying about what I think needs to be in an opening um, having an adrenaline rush with an action scene and mm-hmm. a bit of information was one um, character introducing a character really well is the second, but that also mm-hmm. ties into the action scene, but it also doesn't have to, cause it doesn't have to be an action scene to introduce a character mm-hmm. before the titles that, um, I guess that happens a kind of in Kiki's delivery service. They try to introduce her character, but I think you really mm-hmm. don't get a sense of her until after right. that little fifties, uh, was it like doo-wop song plays? Well, I, some of the best, at least in my opinion, some of the best instances in the form of introducing individual characters come from like longer running franchises, like murder on the Orient express does a great job in their opening scenes of setting up um poirot poirot i don't i can't poirot say his name. is i've stumbled over that many times that gentleman um they do a great job of doing nothing but establishing him yes. the same is true of basically like every sherlock holmes movie i've ever seen right because basically that character is your hook it's what you hang the rest of your story on mm-hmm. and so they do usually a great job of just establishing that character because you almost always it, not in the Hound of the Baskervilles, but mm-hmm. you almost always have him solving one case, like wrapping it up, and mm-hmm. then you move on to the to the new case for this film. Right. The third kind of opening was just setting up tone. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. And the the two films that come to mind, which I I tone and setting have to go right. hand in hand. The two films that come to mind really well. Are the Land Before Time, <laughs> which is a classic, love Land Before Time, and Bicentennial Man, which I am not familiar with. Um, Bicentennial Man, I I don't know how well it's liked by people. I think mm-hmm. it it sits in the middle, but it's a film that really works for me because, I mean. I when I watched Brave Little Toaster the last time, mm-hmm. that was many years ago now, but I watched it in sophomore year of college because I hadn't six years mm-hmm. up to that point. Mm-hmm. When I did, I was distraught for three days because this film just affected me so much. And it it always ties back to very innocent, very incapable characters. Like they they're they're walking, talking appliances. They, right. they the can, ability of the brave little toaster to fight off anything is kind of 
kind of absurd in just the idea. It's absurd, but I also feel such pity for them because it's scary to think that they could get crushed or or broken, rusted, thrown off cliffs. Like right. it's, I really get attached to them, and to see them nearly die at the end there, and then they're all right. Like that really takes it out of me. Mm-hmm. Bicentennial Man has a similar feeling because it's about a mass-produced robot who is like a home assistant or mm-hmm. like a like a butler that you purchase and becomes mm-hmm. a part of your family. Mm-hmm. But by the time that his first owner passes away, he is given his freedom mm-hmm. to not be attached to anyone. He he can now live amongst everyone else on his own trying right. to find work, trying to make a life, and he eventually finds a German uh, toy maker who names him his son, and then we have Pinocchio, the spin-off version. Well, he he does meet something of a of a toy maker. He's he's a a mechanic and a robots expert, but he deals in um, synthetic uh, skin and synthetic organs. And so, uh, Robin Williams plays the main robot character. Uh, he decides he wants to be given a real face mm-hmm. and real working organs and right. like simulated organs. And so I, I guess it's something like 30 years or so after he was first made, he becomes almost human-like. Right. And he falls in love with the daughter, no, the, the granddaughter of his first owner, mm-hmm. and they hook up. And they Which has and- got to be weird for everybody. <laughs> I mean, if you think about hooking up with Robin Williams, period, that's already weird. If you think about hooking up with Robin Williams as a robot, that's weird. If you think about hooking up with Robin Williams, who was probably your caretaker when you visited your grandfather, no, that's that, just disturbing. That hadn't happened. He, that hadn't happened yet. He left when um, his owner's daughter was still a little kid, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so he hadn't met up with the family in many years. So it's not super creepy. Not as much. Gotcha. I, I think there was a period of like 15, 20 years where he wasn't in much contact with them. Mm-hmm. Um. But uh, his owner dies. Mm -hmm. His owner's daughter dies. He's there for her on her deathbed. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end of the film, like near the end of the film, uh, Robin's character is appealing to a a government body for citizenship to to gain a legal sense of humanity. Like you are classified as a human being because you have met all these criteria. And on his deathbed, he is granted full humanity by the legal system. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's even in his deathbed with his wife, who is the granddaughter of his former owner. Mm-hmm. And so it. every time I get to that final scene, it really gets to me because this is a, a character who was crafted by man and lives 200 years. Mm-hmm. And dies as a human. Like that journey is miraculous to me. Mm-hmm. And so, to re- reach back to openings, you cannot show this man's death until you show his birth. So, we see in the opening credits the manufacture process of every part mm-hmm. of this robot character. Right. Um, put to some of the most whimsical and heart tugging 
music I've heard from composer James Horner, mm-hmm. who of course also did The Land Before Time. Of so you, you have two miraculous themes, but The mm. Land Before Time is more thunderous and epic rather than like twinkly and tiny and uh, the Bicentennial Man has this tempo. Land of... Before Time is really the story about... It's it's a story that, like, history has forgotten. The whole point of it is kind of it's a small little story in a much wider world that never will really ever appreciate it. Right. Which is kind of what you're talking about with those smaller sounds, those kind of, like... Um, <clears throat> not... I don't... I'm not a musician. Um, but, like, the bells and the, the sounds of like wind, um, wind chimes and things like that. I'm, I'm yes. picturing it in my head, but I can't really describe it well. The the Land Before Time theme, or the opening opening theme, starts out with low, I want to say French horns, um, starting out with murky water and, and showing tiny little creatures, mm-hmm. and it slowly pans over and fades into bigger and bigger creatures until mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. the... Um, Brachiosauruses, and that's when the French horns really blast out. Right. Um, in Bicentennial Man, you have pistons and gears mixed in with a a clanky tempo mm-hmm. uh, to to mimic the factory sounds. Right, sort of like a working song. Right, with piano, and mm-hmm. piano always gets to me when you when you have a it's a melody that evokes the emotion of the main character and, and his mm. need to be more than he was. Right. Like that's, that's what I get from, from themes like that, from melodies like that. Mm-hmm. It always helps to evoke a character's inner struggle. Right. Opening titles and themes. There were a few others that I had where, where you don't have an opening scene, but you just start with the title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I realized that there were there were two films that I could compare directly together because they almost do the same thing. <clears throat> and that is the original Star Wars and Kroll. Uh, the Kroll classic. Why wouldn't we? Did you go watch that in theaters when they did the um, Fathom release for the Mystery Science Theater? No, I actually didn't. I... I I've never managed to make it through the whole film, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. should. I forgot they did that. I need yeah, to see they if did. they released you should, it. You should go watch it. It's I I did not watch <clears throat> it in theaters. From the parts of it that I have seen since, it's great. Crawl is not great, but the, the Mystery Sads Theater of Crawl is great. Yeah. Um. So what you have there, with the original Star Wars, I, I just saw... A video from a YouTube channel called Hack Fraud Media, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it was basically the son of Plinkett. Um, he tried to mimic the same voice, and he tried I'm to do his Mr. Plinkett, right? Yeah, he did his own review of the Force Awakens because he mm-hmm. felt Plinkett didn't do a great job with that, not like his older reviews. And I, f- I feel like that's kind of true because he harped on so many other things and then finally talked about the new movie mm-hmm. rather than nitpicking about everything like he did before. So this guy did a wonderful job and his voice of Plinkett actually gets better once he does The Last Jedi. Uh-huh. But in The Force Awakens, he points out that right from the get-go, The Force Awakens loses a bit of, of charm 
because it just starts with that ominous Lucasfilm logo mm. and no 20th Century Fox logo. Now, obviously, you wouldn't have the 20th Century Fox logo, but he points out that when John Williams was writing the score for the original Star Wars, he he was the one who brought back the 20th Century Fox theme because they hadn't been using it for like 40 years. So he brought it back from 1933, recomposed it, and once that plays, you have the blue text where everything cuts to black, silence, mm -hmm. and then the Star Wars logo blasts from your face into the distance, and the fanfare for the type for the logo and the Star Wars theme are in the same key. Right. So you have you have that, you have the horns, silence, anticipation, blam. Here's the horns again, same key. So you are instilling a, a sense of excitement and anticipation in your audience before you get the film going. Uh, the new movie loses that mm -hmm. because it just starts on black. Mm -hmm. um, and he was saying, well, why not have something like the, the Disney logo up there, but designed for the Star Wars brand and have a new theme that's not the Disney theme that they're using now, mm -hmm. but something that evokes what used to be there. Because even on the soundtrack and even when they play it in concert, they play the 20th Century Fox theme before the Star Wars theme almost every time. It's just part of the music now. Right. Um, but once you get past that, then you get to the title crawl. And normally, and because it was done so many times afterward, you'd think it would be narrated. You would mm -hmm. have a narrator telling you all this exposition. But they he decided, I'll do a title crawl and I'll have people read this before we move on. But once that goes away, then it pans down and we immediately dive into a, an action moment with that giant Star Destroyer coming over and you instill in the audience a sense of awe. Mm -hmm. You establish the, the major powers at play mm -hmm. and you prove to everyone that you've got something special to offer them with the visual effects that will be peppered throughout this experience. Right. You are taking this extremely seriously. This is not your your mom and dad's Flash Gordon. This is right. the next level. Right. So then, of course, you have all of your copycats, all of your Star Wars in impersonators and fantasy films that want to take little bits and pieces of that. Mm -hmm. So I think Kroll was, I want to say, 85, 84 or 85. Most of those fantasy films are between 83 and 86, with some of them even earlier. Because mm -hmm. um, Excalibur was 1980, Legend was 85, Neverending Story was 84. So when that film starts, mm -hmm. it's a little bit like Labyrinth, because Labyrinth is is iffy. I'm a little iffy on how that starts, because that's mostly just a. This is Labyrinth by Del Toro, or is this no? A separate this labyrinth? is the Jim Henson Labyrinth. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. You start that movie off with a CGI owl that flutters mm -hmm. past the screen, and I think it there's a there's a mirror effect where it flies into itself and it kind of fractures. Mm. Um, but you have the David Bowie song playing over that, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it's not it's not as great of an opening as it could be. But I think it's one of those openings where 
We just want to, we want to set you up with a good piece of music. We just want to show you the titles. We don't want to show you anything exciting until later. Right. And sometimes that's all right. And I think for me, that's one of the films where, okay, we'll just go basic for this. But Crawl is a film that it's odd because you have a, another piece, another piece of music by James Horner. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. this is one of those films where he he started with Battle Beyond the Stars. He did the theme music for that. And that was partially, from what I can tell, it was partially inspired by the music of Jerry Goldsmith for the Star Trek motion picture. And of course, James then did Star Trek II. Mm. And the way that he composed Star Trek II is the is almost the exact same motifs and riffs and style of using his horn section that he used for four other films after that. And we don't judge him for how he used his horn section. <laughs> that is every person's individual choice, and we allow them to do that. We don't judge. We are very open-minded. So Kroll has a, has a very similar approach to the music, except it it has that sort of regal trumpeting riff that mm-hmm. he throws mm-hmm. in there, like the, the the harmony that royal trumpet sections have been used in like films from the 50s. So you you build up his music and it starts with a chorus of women wailing, uh, kind of, I, I guess it w- it's meant to evoke outer space because we do start in outer space. This is one mm. of those fantasy films that acknowledges, oh, there's other planets and we're part of a galaxy of different planets and different alien races. But we start out like that and there's this, um, the the glaive, the four-sided throwing star that's in the film. That flutters by, goes left, goes up, goes into the background, and then it flies up and reveals the title. And that's all you get for the first 45 seconds, building up this theme that's slowly rising in, in volume and mm-hmm. tempo until you you get to the, the whole orchestra playing off. But once that happens, then we slowly fade in to I think it's three shots for the next three minutes of a giant rock floating through space. Hmm. Compelling stuff. Really, really attention-grabbing stuff. And my big problem with how they handled it was you have this incredible theme, this wondrous, beautiful theme that should be accompanied by much better visuals than this because mm-hmm. you're for three minutes, you're just watching a giant mountain of rock, a floating alien fortress floating through space at five miles an hour. Right. In three shots, you know, it's not even from an Epic shot. You're, you're looking at it coming forward towards you. Then at a 45 degree angle to a vanishing point off center and then you're watching, you're you're slowly rotating around it, I think. Uh-huh. But that ain't no Star Destroyer shot. Right, right. There, there's no real establishment of scale. Mm-hmm. There's no establishment of what this gigantic thing is meant to be until it lands on Earth and you realize, oh, this is some sort of strange, mythical alien mountain fortress that lands on not Earth. 
Like it's such a classic weird... not Earth. <laughs> I love not Earth. It's my favorite place to go visit on a vacation. I love not Niagara Falls. <laughs> it's maybe my favorite part. You get there and you're like, ooh, it's falling up. It's the best. That opening doesn't quite understand what it's doing with itself. It's trying to imitate Star Wars in little bits, but it's not really establishing anything for the rest of the film. It's not establishing any theme. It's not establishing any relationships. Mm -hmm. It's not establishing setting mm -hmm. because we don't even see where we are until after this giant mountain lands. Right. Um, and the theme is so magical and wondrous and well composed. You'd wish that they would put better visuals underneath it. That would be more exciting. Like maybe panning across a tapestry of mm -hmm. something or slowly panning through a detailed model of sculpture, mm -hmm. like showing different different vignettes of scenes all sculpted out of marble, and some of them are cracked and broken. Uh, something creative like that. Or maybe we're, maybe like the opening of The Last Starfighter, we're floating past planets and into a, a warp tunnel, and here's the credits, you know? Mm -hmm. And we're, or... Last Starfighter, more, also a great movie. Keep going. More fitting to what is established by the narration that follows this opening of Kroll, you show the the villain's fortress taking over planets one by one. And it wouldn't quite match with the, the uplifting theme. The theme really should be put against the heroes doing something, mm -hmm. but you could open the film with the villain um conquering worlds and showing that through animated visuals and artwork if mm -hmm. not actual visual effects of of models and pyrotechnics mm -hmm. yeah but, real quick just as a general question how does the like the exposition crawl work for you before that in the original star wars you have yeah in episode four you have the exposition crawl where they're like a small band of rebels doing this thing, da, 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 and then it pans down to the planet, or does yes. it pan up? I don't. It pans down. It pans down, and that was why people were mad at Rogue One because it didn't pan, and people were like, "Oh no, Rogue One sucks. It's not part of the continuity because they didn't pan down." It was weird. I didn't, right. Yeah. I but. think we start with us floating over rings of a planet and seeing a ship pass over them. And then it goes down to the planet. That's Krennic's ship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Rogue One. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But that's that's kind of my question is you're talking about the opening of episode four kind of after the after the exposition part starts. Like most of the things you've talked about, like the score coming in and like the first visuals and things like that are kind right. of right after that. So do you include that in the opening in your mind? Because that would be almost. I do. Yeah. Um, because you. You. I'm thinking about it in, in with these two examples. I'm thinking mm -hmm. about it in terms of what happens before the first line of dialogue is spoken. Right. And like in because other instances you will have scenes of just action and dialogue. It'll, it'll just be happening. Mm -hmm. So some scenes will do that. They'll just jump right into a scene. Other stuff, you'll get a title sequence that's self-contained. You have all the credits. You have the title. You mm -hmm. have the theme. And you have some visuals maybe. It's boxed off. Mm -hmm. But Star Wars, 
it's continuous because the star field is always there. Right. So the the titles come in, the crawl comes in, it mm-hmm. fades off, you pan down, and we're still going. Right. So I do kind of tie that in in that instance because mm-hmm. it's all self-contained before we cut inside the Tan T4 and C-3PO starts talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. See, I would... Granted, coming from a a much stronger stance on like the importance of structure and like theme and those sorts of things over like tone and music and sort of those sorts of ideas. Um, that opening title crawl to me almost undermines part of that opening because essentially in that title crawl, you have the idea of a little force fighting at the big empire and they're not doing great, but they're going to try and they're going to hopefully find something to, to fight them with. And then you go to an immediate representation of that in symbol of the small ship running away from the big ship. Yes. It's so probably to some not... degree, like to me, it sort of feels like one undercuts the other. Either the title crawl is sufficient to set up that theme or the visual image is, but putting one just before the other kind of weakens both. It might waste a little time. Mm-hmm. I don't think it weakens anything. Um, but it's probably unnecessary for the first film. I think mm-hmm. by the second film, does it feel more necessary because time has passed? For the title crawl? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the title crawl probably makes the most sense in the first one because it's establishing the rest of the world. You know, that's the part that lets um, our dear friend George Lucas, who we've talked about several times, um, kind of skip over some things that normally you'd have to confront because basically he goes through and is like, here are the players, here's what's going on, now let's get straight to people shooting each other with big ships. So now you're saying it does serve a purpose. Oh no, it does serve a purpose. My point is, is that the purpose is to establish the universe. Right. Which is the same purpose that the ships are serving. Yes. The only difference is, is that this title sequence is the only part of it that I say is like completely... That's non-derivative. That's not like just reiterating what's about to happen is the place names. That's like, probably true because hear... you, Darth Vader tells you about the plans that were stolen right. in, in almost the same way. Right. And he confronts Princess Leia about it. He, he talks to his own guys and her about it. So we're made very clear mm-hmm. that plans have been stolen. They're sequestered somewhere. We see Leia put those into R2 and we learn that that's what they were later. Right. So, yeah, the the title crawl probably is very redundant. Right. And that's the part that's the part where like looking at it from an editorial standpoint, it's kind of like, okay, cool. What is in completely essential about this part of it that keeps me from just cutting it out for the sake of cutting it out? And the part of it that is is the fact that one you're setting up the fact that the rebels have one. You know, like there's that opening like the rebels having just one one time did this thing. We're like, okay, cool. They're not just like they, there's a chance they're they're fighting. Mm-hmm. There's an actual conflict. It's not just one little group being like, "Yeah, we're gonna fight you. We're so mad." You know, it's actually a group fighting. Um, that's necessary because it helps set up the themes and the point. Like instead of the you know Darth Vader having to be like, "Ah, you all won the one time. Oh, curses! Now we have to go and find the thing you stole." Right. Or you're like, oh yeah, when he's like, find the thing they stole. We're like, cool, yes, we're on board. They stole the thing. We all know this. Well, we get a little bit of that in the the Death Star uh, meeting room. Right. Which I think is a half hour into the film or more. Yeah. 
Yeah. But that's also folded into some characterization, if I remember it correctly, yeah. which I probably don't. But that actually comes back to a different point. You established three kinds of openings. Basically, you had the opening establishing tone. Mm-hmm. You had the opening establishing character. Mm-hmm. And you had opening... Um, just building up adrenaline. Just building up adrenaline. Mostly. I would alter that to a fourth category that is opening establishing plot. Um, let's see if I can think of a good example for this. Hunt for Red October, maybe? Um, there are a couple movies that are like plot-heavy, plot-centric. Actually, no, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is a wonderful example of this. The opening of Lord of the Rings has nothing to do with any of the main characters. Period. It has nothing to do with the tone of the movie. Eh, a little bit. Like, it kind of does, but most of the movie isn't Gladriel talking to us in a deep, imposing voice, which was great and lovely, and I appreciated. Um, I and- think you're get, you're mostly getting setting, you're getting scope there, but you aren't right. necessarily getting tone. But you're getting the plot, because yes. the whole point is we have a MacGuffin that we must take to a place and destroy. And that's what they do for the next three movies. Right. And that that's your... Uh, yes, you're right. Because I, I said action sequence that imparts some information, but those should probably be separate. Because um, I think opening a film with an action scene that does nothing more than have action is mm-hmm. wasteful. It needs mm-hmm. to have a character introduction or it needs to impart a bit of information. If it doesn't, it... it it's just kind of there. Mm-hmm. So you're right. There should be a fourth category where it's mostly establishing plot. And I will point out, they do definitely have a lot of action in that opening. They do. You know, cause we see the, the orcs and the elves all killing each other and it's glorious and great, but that's really not like the feeling of the first movie. The first movie isn't really about the great epic battles yet. We're not quite to that. That's, mm-hmm. you know, to two towers and return of the king um but yeah and i think that's really kind of a good opening is defined by what you're trying to achieve you're trying to get an audience to connect with the the story you're telling them you're trying to take them somewhere and basically the machine that you're using to take them places are usually one of those four things yeah and i i was even thinking it needs to be any two together mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. if it's not doing any two then it's it's less than it could be mm-hmm. uh the third was tone and setting because mm-hmm. i think tone and setting go hand in hand you can't necessarily establish tone unless you establish setting except bicentennial man was more tone mm-hmm. and a bit of backstory so I we guess. have we have tone we have plot we have character and then we have Plot, character, and just uh, imparting a tiny bit of information through an action scene. Just okay. a little nugget of information useful for later. It's not necessarily right, more, like, more plot, like a phantom but, setup, like where you're just putting, you're like setting up a thing. Right. It's it's more or less what you're talking about in TV shows, where you have that that opening two or three minutes where mm-hmm. you're just hooking the audience for the rest of the film and right. then the titles right. start. Right. Um, I would maybe, and this I guess would be more true for like drama, but there's also theme. Like this is this was my general point, my overarching point. 
whether or not you have a good opening is whether or not you are clearly setting the expectations of the audience and engaging their interest in that setup. Mm -hmm. You know, like um, North and South, the TV show on, I believe you can also watch it on Netflix because Netflix is great until they start making us pay more money and then we're all going to hate them. Um, but it's, it's an English drama. It's about class and it's about girl who likes guy who is, you know, surly or surly guy who likes girl who is too stuck up to like him. It's, it's that kind of a thing. It is really about the themes of the story. You know, North and South is about the cultural differences between where these two characters come from. And that's the theme of the piece. I feel like if you have, and this maybe is going back to what you're saying, I think that a good opening will have as many of these categories as it can manage. You know, yes, it really should. Having, having a drama with an action opening, probably not relevant. North and South doesn't need to have an action sh set piece no. as it's setting up its plot. But having character moments in the midst of your tone and your theme setup, those things are almost integral to each other. Like, you can do them without each other, to some degree, but it's very hard to have a meaningful character moment that doesn't relate to your theme. Right. Because if it doesn't, uh, this was an interesting point. I watched a video the other day um, discussing recurring motifs in Hamilton, the musical. Because basically, there are certain lines that are repeated throughout different songs that take on different meanings based on which song they're now spoken in. Um, one of the best lines is satisfied, like the word satisfied. There's an entire song dedicated to that motif um, involving one sister and various things like that. It's then brought up later as kind of a burn against another character by saying, I knew you'd never be satisfied, which is referring back to this other emotional conflict and this other theme that they've been doing that. And it's now a new expression of that same theme. If you don't have a character moment that somehow we can recontextualize later based on that theme changing, it's not going to be a character moment that people will really remember because there's nothing to remind them of it. The prequels, sadly enough, are wonderful examples of this because they have three movies through which you see some themes actually kind of go around. One of the worst and best things I've seen lately on the internet are people who go through. Um, the prequel movies and do like edited cuts of things like Obi-Wan and Anakin being buddies and having fun. And you go through and, you know, they'll put music over it and you're like, oh, this is kind of fun. But you realize that the moments that they share at the end of those three movies are completely and totally different in your mind when you go back and think about where they started. Like somebody took the opening cut of Obi-Wan meeting Anakin where he's a little kid and Obi-Wan's a, a bigger human and then put it next to Obi-Wan staring down at Anakin when Anakin was burning on the river of lava. And you realize what, like think about the character feeling of that, you know, Obi-Wan, this person who's like, I met you, I knew you, I've kind of de facto raised you your whole life. And now I'm leaving you here to die because of who you've become. If you think about that, there are a lot of interesting kind of character colors that you can add to those actions. It's not inherent to the piece, 
it's not something that you look at and you're like, Obi-Wan's clearly torn up about this in the same way I think he is. But when you look at the different moments throughout the film and string them together, you kind of can't help but be brought to certain conclusions like that into ideas where it's like, oh, these are consistent characters doing consistent sorts of things, which leads them here. This is now really, really sad, which is why a lot of people will defend the prequels and say the prequels are actually not as bad as people say, because when looked at all together, a lot of the bad parts of the first one are forgivable when you know where they're going. Right. And most people will say that Revenge of the Sith is one that they they liked. Mm -hmm. So it leads into something that was okay. Right. Revenge of the Sith was one of my favorite Star Wars movies for a while. I once defended it on an online forum to a bunch of nerds, and that did not go well for me. But <laughs> I did it, and I was very proud of myself. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like that with any any good moment. Any good moment should be able to have callbacks to it. Um Game of Thrones is right now in its last season. Um, the second episode came out last Sunday to date this podcast a little bit, considering it probably won't come out for weeks and weeks and weeks, and this will all be old news. But there was a line where somebody referred to Jamie Lannister saying, um, the things I do for love, when he shoved Bran out the window in episode one. And the person saying it was Bran. And so the irony of the guy who was almost murdered as a child repeating the justification of the person who almost murdered him is so ironic and so interesting. It is such an interesting thematic turn. Um, I feel like if you can't work in something in your opening that can become that, and that's why you see so many openings that kind of bookend, you'll see an opening that sort of like sets up something that then you'll see somebody pay off at the end. Um, like, I want to say Red October does that. Like, I want to say Red October is kind of does an opening where it's a bunch of cuts of, like, the main character, like, reading blueprints with coffee and, like, walking around his house and doing stuff. And then the ending is him, like, putting them all away and, like, being with his daughter or something like that. They do that to help remind you of where you started. And so next time you start, you already know where it's going and you can appreciate the journey in a different way. Yes. So... No, those are those are lovely points. I really like that. Hmm. Openings are such an interesting kind of idea to deal with because they're really kind of no matter where your film goes, it is your introduction. You know, like it's sort of like when you meet somebody for the first time, your first impressions of them will either be overcome by who like your growing knowledge of them or they'll be confirmed. But either way, your first impression will never really change. And that's kind of, I guess, why those opening moments are so important. Absolutely. Because if you can't tie down that, like, if you can't make a good first impression, you better make sure that you're making the wrong impression for the right reasons. Yes. <laughs> um, I just, I, I remembered another opening that I really like. Mm-hmm. Do you recall um, Great Muppet Caper? I do. I can't remember its opening terribly well, but I do remember the film. What it does in the opening is I think we we initially start off with uh, Kermit, Fozzie, and Gonzo as their characters in this film's context because mm -hmm. they're playing characters not themselves. Right. They're, they're uh, journalists. So it starts off with them in a hot air balloon, and it 
they just play this slow melodic string music that evokes later themes in the, in the soundtrack mm-hmm. and you're seeing this hot air balloon float by in different spots on the screen with the titles fading in slowly and them you know once in a while chiming in with mm-hmm. dialogue but it's a it's a very calming opening mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. then leads into a, a bombastic opening number where mm-hmm. they sing about being in a movie. Here's all the plot points. Here's right, who we right, are. Right, right, uh, We're going to get this started. Anybody else want to join in? Here, here's all the cameos. Right, Here's right. some of the cameos. Here's some of the supporting cast. Mm-hmm. It, it's, a, it's a very meta opening theme right. and they even and have the throwaway song. line like the whole film is very meta but they have the throwaway line where the villain is like why am I, they're like why am i doing this because i'm a villain it's plain and simple and i'm like yes thank you sir good job right. i'm proud of you yeah and i i adore that movie because i it it's surprisingly does a beautiful job of evoking a i want to say a 40s film mm it mm-hmm. it evokes the tone. It does the the song the the musical numbers extremely well. Right. It takes itself very seriously, except when it wants to make a joke. It kind of mm-hmm. it bounces back and forth so well because the main characters are all puppets. Mm-hmm. That's a different episode we should do. We need to do an episode on Taika Waititi and his treatment of humor and drama, and kind of how he combines and com- and pairs the two because that's a very interesting theme to me. And I love a lot of his work. Um, and my brother doesn't, but who cares about my brother? I mean, my mom does, but that's, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's about what that is. You like, like ribbing on your brother. I do, but mainly because I love him dearly and he just has a hard time. He just has a hard time. (laughs) That's about that. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess with with the Great Muppet Caper, it it's a two part opening because you have the opening credits and then the musical number doesn't have any credits, right? And it it blatantly through exposition in the entire song explains the film for you. Before mm-hmm. that, you're setting. I actually I think it does exactly what I just said. You're mm-hmm. writing that line of the serious. And the comedic. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. what the opening does. It starts out serious and calming with these titles slowly fading in and out, just kind of waving in the breeze, flow with the flow with the go with the flow. And then it dives into the comedy and the self-referential stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once that ends, then the movie gets going because we we snap into a photograph in a newspaper that their uh, their version of Perry White is reading. Right. Uh, I love the Muppets in general. They're great. Did you want to talk about, now that we are kind of discussing Muppets and various other things, we've already kind of touched on character a little bit, but did you want to talk about character and characterization and kind of the connections there? Yes, I think that's that's where I was having trouble, uh, I guess not just with openings that are sans title and sans theme, like opening theme music, Mm-hmm. but openings that are are just a, a scene or a sequence mm-hmm. t- uh, establishing character, yes. Well, and this is something that I just I just realized I'd forgotten. Um, 
something I was told once is that essentially the opening is supposed to set up your core fantasy. If you're going to go watch an action movie, you know what that means. Like, you know what your what like mental fantasy you're playing out. Right. You know, regardless of whether or not you're actually fantasizing about being the characters or anything else, you know what's being sold to you. You know what the packaging is. That's kind of the same sort of thing with character openings. Because essentially, characters have core concepts or core um, fantasies to them, uh, inherent to themselves. You know, um, let's see, let me think of a decent character. Um, yeah, Tyrion Lannister, who is a great character whom I love dearly. His setup is basically, you. I think the first time you ever run into him, he's in a brothel. And he's having um, in he's having um, a deep philosophic conversation with one of the workers there about wage labor and whether or not women are paid as much as they should in the market. And it's a very interesting dissertation, and it's very compelling. They bring up some great points, and I really wish that HBO would really get more into those kinds of political conversations and spaces like they do in that opening. But I bring it up because. In that scene, you establish basically all that you need to know about him. Like, his brother has to come in and drag him out and be like, hey, you've got to get back to work. You can tell that he's kind of, he doesn't entirely care about a lot of these things. He's really in it for himself. Um, he's fun and he's funny. He's a dwarf. You get all of those parts because the core fantasy of that character is the outcast. He's the funny reject. He's the guy that we all know and love to laugh with or at, but not the person we ever really spend time with. He's that guy. That's the core of his character. People that can relate to that really love him. <clears throat> People that just think he's funny really love him. He's, he's very lovable, but he's not really accepted by many of the characters in the show. And we understand that from that opening. Um, and I think that's true for most of the characters. Like, you know, Ned Stark, when he get his opening, he's the one passing judgment and killing the, um, the deserter from the Night's Watch. And he's not doing it because he, like, just has this hard-on for murdering people. He's doing it because it's his duty. Because he's supposed to him because he should. Not even necessarily because he feels like he should, but because it's his duty duty to do it and that establishes the whole point of his character what is it there's there's a famous concept called save the cat when they talk about introducing characters or introducing at least your lead character in that you need to make them do something likable you have to make them do something that makes people go "Ooh, i like him he's fun he's interesting i appreciate this and people have spilt a lot of ink over this and or blood depending on how you feel about it um because defining what that means has kind of always been a struggle walter white does not save anyone in the opening of breaking bad because every time he does anything like even when he defends um walter white jr from the people that are picking on him what he's really doing is asserting the dominance that he like has felt deprived of his whole life. He's really just acting out, and he's really doing it for himself. He's not really doing it for anybody else. What makes that interesting 
is we like seeing it. It's not necessarily a fun thing to watch. It's not necessarily... Well, okay, no, it's a lot of fun to watch. Um, it's not necessarily something that you're like, oh, yeah, you saved this thing or you, like, did something fun and interesting. You did something compelling. And that's the same sort of thing. If you have a character that can do something within the first few minutes of meeting him that we can look at and go, ooh, that was interesting, we will stay with that character until the next time it does something. I think what's more interesting almost is when we fall out of love with characters. Like, I think that the moment people, like, will stop paying attention to character is when they start acting in ways that are not consistent to that core fantasy of that character. Like, if Ned Stark had ever cracked a joke inappropriately, we all would have, like, just been like, nope, we're out, done. Mm -hmm. Not funny. I'm out. Um, and the one exception to that, and this is maybe more towards character progression and character arcs, um, is when something awful happens and the character has to change. Like, you know, I'm, I'm using Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones is a wonderful example of this. Um, but have you seen, you've seen Game of Thrones? I tried watching the original two, first two episodes. Mm -hmm. I gave up after that. Yeah, no, that's that's entirely fair. If you can't get into it, it's not something I recommend to people generally. It's not like, oh, yeah, like, go watch this thing. But I'm also assuming then you don't care if I spoil some things. No. There's a character who is a who is widely known as one of the best swordsmen in the land. He goes off and it's just kind of like this rambunctious, sort of like a frat boy with a sword, kind of like, a, oh, yeah, like, I am the best, and that's just the way this is going to go. <clears throat> he stops being that. Very abruptly. But the reason he stops is because someone cuts off his hand. We have a character moment where he runs into something that is so completely paradigm shifting that his character has to change. Otherwise, we wouldn't believe it. If his character remained the same after going through something like that, we'd be like, no, we're not into this. It's not interesting. If he'd picked up a sword with his one hand and it killed a bunch of people and been like, ha-ha, with one hand I can still fight, like Zorro. We all would have been like, no, this isn't, that. no one would do that. That's not realistic. Um, Karen Travis, a wonderful writer, once said she never bases um, characters on real people because she believes real people are boring. I believe Karen Travis has never read history and doesn't know people. History is the story of ordinary people taken into extreme settings. That's what storytelling is. We just do it fictionally as opposed to like studying other people who've done it. When you take a character into an extreme situation that forces them to change, that's when it's all right for a character's core fantasy to change. Because Jamie's core fantasy was basically the rich, the rich kid. He was the rich, good-looking guy who kind of got all the girls and it was great. That was basically his whole character fantasy. That changes as soon as he loses his hand because then it becomes about redemption. It goes from how do you take this person who is basically completely awful and take them to this place where they're actually decent and a good person? What does it take to get there? How does that work out in that person's life? And that's the part of it that's really cool 
for him. You can't just do it. You can't just be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make this character go whoop, because then they stop being interesting to us. Because not only are they now a new character, they're a new character that never passed through a tribulation to make them a new character. And they might be destroying a character that we liked. They might not be. They might be destroying a character that we hated, which is why some people will come back to a show like in the next season, like Flash. I'm not sure if they've ever done this particular thing, but like if you come back after skipping two seasons and you're like, oh yeah, this character is wildly different. I like them now. You know, there you go. You, you can do that. That can happen. But people will never accept changes to a character that they like without justification. You've been listening to Framing the Shot, episode one on opening sequences with my guest, Christopher Horton. In our next episode, we'll be continuing the conversation from how to open a film into how to introduce your characters. So if you like what you've heard so far, consider panning over to the next episode. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. I always enjoy getting to talk to Chris when I can, so I'm glad I could share his insight with you. Have an excellent rest of your day, keep working on those story ideas, keep perfecting those films, and we'll catch you next time.